listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make their bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. When you get out to that track, you sit down in that car. Whatever it is that's roiling around your head, it just goes right out the window. You could tell that this was a big, big thing in his life. He made the movie winning and kind of fallen in love with racing. He was 48 years old when he started. The only thing that I ever found any grace in was an automobile. He wanted to be looked at as a driver, not as an Academy Award winner. He wasn't so much divided between the two. It was that film would come second to racing. He was terrible at first. The studios didn't want him doing that. I mean, they think, oh, Jesus, what, what is he doing in a race car? Is he crazy? Oh, the only way that you're ever going to win a race is just to be right on the edge of it all the time. His whole career looked as though it was going to go down the drain because all he wanted to do was race. I think everybody wanted him to quit racing except him. They'll have to strap me down before they keep me out of these things. <laughs> there was a tendency to write him off as an actor. It's very, very difficult with celebrities. They're used to being a winner, and in racing, you got to pay your dues. You're always competing with yourself. You're trying to bring a little extra to your performance. Well, I think he liked the camaraderie. The fellowship of that relationship with a fellow driver, there's nothing like it. It's not anything you can have in Hollywood at all. He was really a good driver. It's Newman's fourth national championship. Pressure to win grew as he did win, and people expected him to win again. People didn't even think of him as being a movie star racer. He was just a racer. He was that classic red-blooded American boy. Paul has a saying, I'm sure you've heard, where he says, winning isn't everything, it's just all there is. You see it with the Oscars. People vote. They say him or her. In this, you either cross the finish line first, and it's either him or her. Hello out there. Peabody and Sherman here. Set the Wayback Machine. We enter the Wayback, and we're immediately hurtled back through time and space. Hi, I'm Bob Bondurant. I won the World Manufacturers Championship in the Ford Cobras. In 1965. And you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. 
Okay, listeners, hey, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studio, Tantalk Studios in downtown Clearwater. Be sure to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com. If you've missed any of our past shows, you can check out our podcast, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and Golfstream Motorsports. How you doing tonight, Pete? Doing great. How you doing? Pretty good. It's <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit... Uh, just uh, doing a little bit of production here. That's all. You're in the driver's seat tonight. You know, I that? am in the driver's You're seat in tonight. The driver's, yeah. Okay. Try not to crash the car. Try not to crash the car. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, you're turning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, the most fascinating and legendary names, or legendary and fascinating names in motorsports. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I have in the studio well-known, legendary racer, team owner, innovator, entrepreneur. The whole nine yards. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, very special guest, Chuck Jones. Chuck, how you doing this evening? I'm doing okay. Very good. Well, I'll tell you what, we're gonna I'm gonna recap a little bit. What's really interesting is you never know who's in your own backyard. You never know who's in town, you never know who you run into. And I was out on a, doing a little Sunday drive with my wife and my son the other day, and uh, I was cruising through the neighborhood and there was this nine eleven sitting in this gentleman's front yard. But in front of him in front of the nine eleven was which I'd seen the car there before a few few times. Times and uh, but in front of it there was a gentleman getting out of his car so I figured out what the heck let's just take the opportunity to introduce ourselves and say what's the deal in the car so he gets out I ask him about the car and he says no the car is not for sale and the Porsche by the way and uh, he and I asked what his name was he says my name is Chuck Jones and I introduced myself and my wife and my son and as it turned out we have some mutual friends but he was wearing a Patrick Long shirt Patrick Long if you guys follow GT racing was a local racer here in town. So uh, Chuck started telling me a little bit about himself, and he handed me kind of like a little dossier. And then, of course, uh, we talked for a few minutes. And then uh, I went home, and I did a little research on the computer. But let me tell you something. This guy's got some amazing history. This guy's been around racing since the beginning of time. He started in Southern California back in the day. He actually started uh, riding horses. So he went from horses to horsepower. And then he was around... In the good old days, when guys like Alex Exidius and Vic Edelbrock and, and legendary names like that started in racing. So, Chuck, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, my background is Southern California. I was born and raised there. My great-grandfather literally walked out from the Philadelphia area in 1850. It took him five and a half months, no trains, no buses, nothing, and he had an education and no money. And uh, panned for gold, stayed up in Northern California for about eight years, did well. And then in the late 1850s, came down to Southern California and bought property. And uh, as a matter of fact, he built the first packing house for packing grapes and raisins, which was hoped to be a good crop in Southern California, uh, along with lemons and avocados and oranges and so forth. But I basically grew up on a citrus ranch and a pretty good-sized cattle ranch. And my dad was a real cowboy. He was a national-class team roper. Really? And I grew up on horses. And we were we had a, a real ranch, along with the Irvine Ranch and the DeGare Sisters and about four other ranches that, that were real cattle-producing. Uh, pieces of property there in Southern California. Now they're full of houses. But uh, uh, I, I, my dad made the mistake of taking me to a midget auto race. I think it was the first one run in Los Angeles uh, after World War II. The war had only been over a couple, three months. He took me. He shouldn't have. 
I heard them, I smelled them, and I saw them, and that was it. That was it? Yeah, that was it. The cowboy days started coming to an end, and uh, I built, actually, my first car was a 29A on a 32 frame with a flathead Ford in it, and I didn't know what I was doing, and it didn't get much better, but it looked good. <laughs> <laughs> so, and But there were so many manufacturers around then, you know, cam grinders like Escondirian and Potvin and that whole bunch, and Edelbrock and Wyan and you name it, all in a small area. You could drive to any of them within an hour at the most. And the war surplus were real. I remember telling you the other day that you could buy a 671 blower for eight bucks at Washington Hardware and new in the box, left over as replacement blowers for diesel engines uh, used during World War II, not only for trucks, but for, for all sorts of power. Uh, well, basically what you're saying, too, is that the advantage that you guys had in Southern California because of the war, because there was a lot of aviation, a lot yeah. of military facilities building equipment after the war, there really wasn't a demand for the for war for the war effort, so to speak. So a lot of it turned to automotive, and that's why you guys had an advantage over well, anybody else in the country, well, right? And we had we had that as an advantage. You could buy parts, quite honestly, for a nickel on the dollar. Uh, grade 8 bolts, you name it. Like I said, today a 671 blower is five or $6,000. Well, they were eight bucks new in the box. <laughs> eight bucks, hard and, to believe. And uh, it, it, all you had to have was a job mm-hmm. and want to go racing. And drag racing came along in the late 40s. And in fact, I went to the first legal drag race at Santa Ana airport or john wayne airport now came home with the trophy and that made it even worse for me because i just wanted to keep going and and uh, so my start was basically in drag racing and a little bit out in the dry lakes there was a, a fellow who was a few years older than me. he'd been in world war ii had a nice little 27 roadster with a v860 in it and a 21 stud and you know 21 bolts on mm-hmm. the engine head and I used to go out there with him, and he let me drive it a couple of times. I was 16, I think. But, uh, you know, uh, I was just thrown in the deep end, but it was it was great. Tell and us about, what, was this gentleman's name Beam? Was that his name? Yeah, Jim okay. Beam. Okay. So. <laughs> and he was kind of he was uh, kind of legendary already at that point in time, wasn't he? Well, it, it, in this in that sense, yes, in those because he had done some dry lake stuff before World War II. Mm-hmm. That if if you weren't running sprint cars or midgets or whatnot, I you the guys with lesser funds and more amateur were beginning to go out to the dry lakes in the mid and late 30s. Okay. And uh, then I got involved with a fellow by the name of Harold Post and and did the body drawings for the Post Streamliner. And I think that was 1952. I was out of high school, and it went 212 or 14 miles an hour at uh, at uh, um, Bonneville. No kidding. So, but it, it wasn't that I was brilliant or anything. It's just that I could draw. I love cars. I did pinstriping. Um, wow. And, and the guys would put up with me. The guys would put up with you. Yeah. No, no, I'm serious. You know, you, uh, they were a different breed. They didn't put up with you if you weren't useful. So you, in other words, but it was a true car camaraderie. If you brought something to the table, you were part of the team, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, in Southern California, it was much easier. There were at least, I don't think I'm overstating it, in Orange and Los Angeles County, there were probably 25 or 30 airfields built 
small ones where guys could, you know, they'd take a few of the young pilots and they'd fly in and out of these little uh, emergency fields or mm-hmm. training fields, and they were all over the place. And we'd go out there before legal drag racing. There was one called uh, Mile Square, and uh, we'd go out there and race each other. Nobody cared. No gates on the things, and they hadn't been used uh, for a couple, three years after the war. And you met you met guys. You met you met, or we go to the drive-in restaurants. And I remember I had this thirty-two Ford chop top coupe, and I used to tow it there because I had a had a six-volt dry battery in it, and it was stripped completely. And we go look for guys to race and 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 do it. How about street racing back in the day? We really didn't do much of that. Really? Not like the guys think it's so neat to do today. No, I think we were a little smarter than that. Okay. But there were plenty of places we could go. And you got to remember, Southern California then didn't have the density of... Uh, it didn't have the density of population or homes or whatnot. So it wasn't, it, it, there was a different sense of what you could do. Okay. To put a perspective, you know, where you were from, because L.A., Orange County, is a huge area. So put, give us a little geographic sense of where Santa Ana was, the very first racetrack, and where you were on your ranch. I mean, Well, Santa Ana, or John Wayne Airport today, is about... Three and a half miles straight inland from Newport Beach. Okay. Okay. Right on the. That's Pacific southern Island. Los Angeles, really. Well, it's in Orange County, but it's it's south um, south of Los Angeles on the way to San Diego. Okay. And um, that that was the commercial airport. It had been built back in the early twenties, mm-hmm. and uh, and and during the war, it was part of the Santa Ana Air Base, which was the largest training facility in the air corps mm-hmm. i think they ran something like thirty-two thousand pilots wow there in 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 that area of numbers uh and uh there were there were planes in the air day and night and i remember i was a sub teenager and a teenager during the war and after a couple of years we didn't even bother to look up anymore we knew what kind of plane it was from the sound of the engine or the props or whatnot. So it was a fantastic era to grow up in. Uh, we had weather. You know, it was summer in the winter. And uh, so the, the conditions were good. Uh, if you just had a job, you could do a lot of things. Wow. And again, I was single, living at home um, on the cattle ranch. And, um, you know, I worked. I worked hard. But, uh, uh, but I found that I could pinstripe, and I did gold leaf and all that kind of stuff. And uh, So you did that before the Von Dutch days? Uh, there was the Flea, Von Dutch, myself, down in Orange County. I was about the only guy in Orange County for a long while. Von Dutch was the king. Okay. No, nobody. No, Ed Roth was very good. The Flea was very good. So I, you knew all these people back in the day? Uh, yeah. Well, it was a smaller group. It was easy uh-huh. to know them. Okay. And they'd show up the drag races. and In fact, Roth did. I've got a picture here that I showed you, the one with the helicopter rotor tip on. Uh-huh. Roth did that one. He they, wanted to do one of my cars. The Sidewinder? Yeah, the the Sidewinder. Tell us a little bit about the Sidewinder. Let's go into that because that's kind of a neat well, car. There was um, a fellow by the name of Paul Nicolini, and um, he had built this big go-kart. It was chain-driven, just like a go-kart, only had a Chrysler engine in it, set in sideways, a carbureted one. And they ran a single spool 
um, um, chain front and rear gear, and I I think it was a three quarter pitch chain, but they kept breaking chains. They had enough torque with this carbureted Chrysler, and this was in nineteen late fifty six or whatnot. They just weren't having any luck with it. The car looked like it made sense to me with the engine setting sideways, the car's going down the strip, but the torque's going right backward and you know uh-huh. counter to the revolution of the engine flat right into the ground and pushing the tires into the ground i thought that was a good idea so um a guy by the name of joe mallard and i were together and uh we rebuilt it put a double spool on three-quarter pitch change and uh i took the front spring or one half of the springs off of one of my great grandfather's buggies, and that was the front spring for the chassis, and a and a axle off of Ford. I think it was an Angela built in England. Oh, Anglia, yeah, yeah, Anglia. Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. and um, pictures around here of that too, and we just modernized it a little bit, and. Uh, uh, then I I joined together with um, Jack Chrisman, okay, and um, and a fellow well Mallard and uh, Joe Reed and I provided the chassis, Jack drove it, Joe Mallard built the engines and uh, so it was Chrisman Mallard Reed and Jones and for a while in '57 '58 we were the car car to beat in Southern California and basically we were by far the quickest gas dragster in the country. No kidding. And we could run against the fuel dragsters because we were so much more efficient. And if you got off the line first, that was pretty much it. We could run a much shorter gear without breaking loose. That was the point. Gotcha. So our top end speed might be 15, 18, 20 miles less, but we didn't care. Now you're talking about that 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 a transverse mounted motor like that or sideways motor was extremely innovative because really the only other guy that was kind of innovative at the time was what Tommy Ivo right yeah well Ivo ran the twin engine Buicks and right. the, that big four engine thing and of course we Tommy Ivo owned San Fernando Raceway oh did he yeah well when I say owned it oh in terms of winning in, in terms of winning he okay used, but we raced mostly at uh, Long Beach and that was the big track. Okay. And Mickey Thompson owned it, and Mickey had his own car, and we used to race against us. He never beat us, by no the kidding. way. <laughs> yeah. Mickey was a tremendous guy, and I had a little one-man ad agency, and I used to do a lot of his ad work. I really? did his catalogs and came up with a little thing called Mictor Mouse. You know, it was kind of a run on a Mickey Mouse cartoon <laughs> character. Cool. And so forth and so on. But Mickey was a great guy to work with, and... Um, Let's yeah, go back in history now. Back so back in your day, so you were an innovative guy. TV, uh, to, TV Tommy Ivo was. Mickey Thompson, who else was real innovative and came up with some oddball stuff that gave you guys competition back then? Well, there were there were other guys that were running twin-engine drags, or, or, you know, twin-engines, four and aft, engine okay. one in front of the other. And then uh, in, in 56 or 57, the fellows moved from in front of the rear axle behind that started in southern california you know get a little more weight in the back and then begin to lengthen them out and uh i'm criminy i'm in my 80s and my short-term memory is terrible and my long-term memory is well now we had the best, so. we had this guy here in florida the swamp rat now <laughs> you, you got some don garland stories don't you because he basically yeah. didn't he his big claim to fame really is the rear engine dragster after his broke apart but 
Yeah, but he, his rear engine dragsters came well after ours. Oh, really? Yeah, and not only ours, but uh, uh, the two brothers that used to run the Allison engine um, dragsters. I, for, I should know their name, but at any rate, there, there were a number of rear engine dragsters around. But, but we were, it didn't catch on, though, right? Not, it, it didn't catch on, no. Okay. Uh, ours did, but nobody wanted to build another Sidewinder. That I mean... We could beat, uh, seriously, we could beat everybody for a while. Because, because technically, isn't yours, isn't the Sidewinder one of the first rear-engine dragsters in a way? Well, thanks to Paul Nicolini, yes. Not, uh, okay. I wasn't the innovator. Paul okay. was the guy that did it first. I just liked his idea, and we came along and uh, and kind of cleaned up some of the problems that he was having by uh, just doing a little quick engineering. I think... I think we're going to go ahead and play a little song here real quick because yeah, you, you can tell us a little story because you're a big Elvis fan and you did a little we're doing this this is the movie we got coming out right now or the TV, the song is spin out and let's just fast forward just for a second yeah. but you actually did a little stunt driving in this movie didn't you well um, the, the spin out was done out in the San Fernando Valley or there was kind of a racetrack built on the main streets you uh-huh. know it was it, it wasn't exactly racing put it that way but uh, well, I had what was I had a Lola T70 and that we that was used in it and, and there were some other race cars and, and there were things like street jaguars with numbers on the side and whatnot I mean it was it was pretty hocus and when they had us do crashes and whatnot we ran through uh, hay bales that didn't have any wire on them and so not big stunt stuff okay but it was a fun movie I think we only saw Elvis twice during the whole shooting he was uh, most of his stuff was done in the studio. In the studio? Yeah, okay. a little bit out there. Let's go ahead and fire this song up a little bit. We'll be right back. You're tuning okay. into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We're going to take a break. And you're going to listen to a really cool, groovy 60 song spin out by Elvis Presley from the movie. She can really score. Never saw parts move like that before. To flag you down, that's a goal. Scoot before you lose control. Let's spin out. Spin out. The road to love is full of danger signs. Too many guys were lost to cross those double lines. Don't you know she's at the Saw parts move like that before to flag you down. That's a goal. Scoot before you lose control. It's been out. It's been out. Let me hear you spin out. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork. 
or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Belladora's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make their bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. Hi, this is Dave McClellan, the voice of NHRA. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back. Thanks, Dave. You're friends with Dave McClellan, aren't you? you yeah, can tell f- 50 you, years ago. 50 years ago. But anyway, or so... more. Anyway, we're just talking to Chuck Jones. He's our guest for this evening. Chuck is a legendary and fascinating guy in motorsports. Got some great history. He was uh, around racing at the very beginning. Did a lot of drag racing, did some innovative stuff, did some sports car racing, and eventually did some uh, Formula One stuff. But what we're going to talk about right now, we're kind of like, uh, we're kind of moving along slowly, but we just played this clip from the movie Spin Out, or the, uh, theme, the theme song to it. And uh, Chuck actually was involved in the, some of the stun driving in that thing, and I guess you were just telling us a little bit about the Lola. So go ahead and pick up well, where you left off. the... A Lola T-70, it's, it's known as the Lancer Lola, the number nine Lancer Lola. And it's been quite popular. It, it, there are pictures show up of all the time of it. Uh, we did a lot of gold leaf or silver leaf on it. And uh, I used to do m- most of my own printing and, and leaf work because uh-huh. I could do it. That was all. But we redesigned the rear deck and did some stuff under the you know, under the body for suspension, um, helping with suspension problems and so forth that came along with the early Lolas. And, um, um, but we had to be innovative then. That was back nearly 50 years ago now. And if you wanted to be running up front, you better get with it. You didn't just buy the car and a kit and put it together and go race it. So, uh, But there were a lot of us around that were used to doing that because it was different then. Mm-hmm. Um, you, pretty much, um, you pretty much just used a little common sense and gave things a try. And uh, How much testing did you do back in those days before you guys went to racing? Now, let, let's just, so for, the, for the listeners' purposes, we're talking about the Lola T70 Mark II, which is the open car, the very first of the Lolas, correct? Yeah. Was this before Can-Am, or is this right about this the emphasis? This was before Can-Am. This okay. was, these cars came along in the mid-60s, 65, okay. actually. Okay. Prior then, I had had one of the front-engine chaparrels. They built four of them. Did you really? And, yeah, Trotman and Barn built it, and uh, and that's uh, Skip and I ran it uh, earlier on in 63. 
63 and 64. Okay, we're going to make a transition announcement here. So, in other words, you were, we were earlier we were talking about drag racing, so now we're into road racing. So when into did you make the racing. transition into road racing? Well, I actually made it in 1957. Oh, while did I you? was in drag racing. I helped Jack Miller build a car called the El Caballo, and it was taken to Italy for the last real Milimia, the thousand-mile road race from Brescia in northern Italy down to the outskirts of Rome and back up through the Radicosa Pass and whatnot. And it was the one where one of the Ferraris, um, uh, Alfonso de Portago, was driving. He and his co-driver uh, were killed and 11 other people, and that's why they discontinued the, that's right. the Milimia. Uh, but then there was no, you know, no crowd control. Um, kind of like rallying today, but um, they were going, I suppose, 180 miles an hour or so, and that it. But that was my first introduction to Europe, and I was invited to because there weren't many Americans around then. Dan Gurney had been there, and, and uh, Bondurant, and a couple of others, Richie Ginther, mm-hmm. and um, including Penske raced over there one time. Uh, yes, a little later on. Right, okay. So, but, well, he owned one of the Formula One teams. He Did bought he? March and uh, and ran it in 65 and 66, I believe. So, okay. Uh, about the time I first joined in there with Mo Nunn and Team Ensign. But, uh, but I loved Europe. I, you know, I, I got off the boat and by lunchtime, I knew I liked the whole place <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. And, uh, but um, uh, we went on, towed this car on down to Italy, Act Miller and myself and, and Frank Harrison and another young fellow. I've forgotten his name. But uh, at any rate, uh, that was my introduction to Europe and to the European attitude about racing. And it's different. It is different. Share some thoughts on that the attitude. Well... <laughs> In Europe, if you go over to race, they'll genuinely welcome you, and I mean genuinely, and then ignore you and blow your doors off. (laughs) Okay. They expect you to adapt to the way they think and feel and do. Okay. And it's, it's different there in part because, say, a young driver coming up in the United States, <clears throat> racing for SCCA or whatnot, he's got maybe 12 races a year. Or maybe 13 or 14, depends on what they organize. And they're 500 miles apart or 2,000 miles apart. So it takes more money. It takes greater organization. You've got to drive considerable distance to race. And then you have three, you know, three-day weekend that you race on. And it's, it's not that it's relaxed. It's just a different use of time. Okay. And uh, and it's the same thing for the young guys racing in Formula Atlantic. There aren't as many races, so they don't get the exposure. And they're quite often, in the lesser formulas, they're quite often racing more or less locally on the West Coast or the East Coast or, or the Midwest. So they're racing against the same guys all the time. Okay. <laughs> and maybe one or two or three of them have got some real talent, and the rest, you know, down like anything else, down the train. Go to Europe and uh, say you're starting Formula Atlantic or Formula. Um, There'll be Formula Three over there, yeah, right? Formula Three or mm-hmm. Formula Four. Two, four, okay. And uh, you've got guys from all over the bloody world, and maybe you go to some place like Silverstone, which is flat track and very fast corners, and uh, you don't have a three-day weekend. You're there on. You get there Friday night and Saturday or 
Saturday morning you're uh, or get there Thursday night. Friday you're off at uh, seven o'clock or seven thirty in the morning on the track. You got twenty minutes on the track or maybe a half an hour, and you better get your brain up and going quick. And you're racing against some guys that have, that's the only track they run on, so they know it backward, mm-hmm. and you've got to beat them in qualifying and whatnot. And you may be racing in different weather than we have, uh, so forth, or qualifying or whatnot. And what happens is the brain has just got to get with it quicker. Okay. And, uh, and then you've got guys from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Sweden, now India, Japan, all over the bloody world, Australia, whatever, and plus the Central European countries. And there might be, in uh, Formula 4, there might be 50 to 55 cars or so uh, hustling on the track for 40 starting places. So you just, you get a quick, you've got to learn quick. And you've got to be up quick and going quick. So the discipline the, in a European driver's mindset is different. It's different. Okay. And, uh, well, just like you mentioned, you've got talent from all over the world, from all the European countries, which pr- has produced some pretty good talent over the years. Yep. And then for us to kind of flow, and you know how Americans are, we typically fly by the seat of our pants. You know, we wing it. But those guys over there, they're structured, correct? Well, right. Uh, and the talent is here. I'm not running down American okay, talent. Okay, no, no. It's, it's the training cycle has yet to get to that speed. Okay. Or however you want to put it, mindset the, level, yeah, whatever. That yeah. You find in Europe, mm-hmm. and but it's expensive, mm-hmm. and young guys have got to put together the money to go there, and it's always been expensive. But um, well, interesting story. You talk about that, and then uh, we had Danny Sullivan on our show a few years ago, and he went to England, took a course, learned how to race over there, and he said it was completely different when he got back to the United States. Danny Sullivan was there. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry. I've got to clear my throat. Uh, Danny Sullivan was there in the 70s, mm-hmm. okay, a little earlier. And uh, he was an American that was willing to adapt, and he did. Mm-hmm. And he ended up with, uh, who was it? Um, he raced for Penske, but that was later. Yeah, that was later. Um, my brain's gone. Soft. That's okay, that's okay. At any rate, um, he just, he adapted and became European in mind and mindset, and and he was good. Mm-hmm. In fact, when he won Indy, spinning and going on to win. 1985. Yeah, that was pretty good stuff. That was good stuff. Yeah, that was good stuff. But uh, at any rate, now some of the earlier people, guys that I, I was involved with and mm-hmm. knew and personally, and we palled around a lot, people like Gurney or Ginther or Bondurant or whatnot, they were an earlier era. Mm-hmm. They were out of the 1930s. You know, they were born in the late 20s or early 30s. Right. So, and just like me, I was born in 1932, and we were molded in a little different way than some of the later drivers. Uh, it was during during the Depression, and my family were fairly well off, but they sure didn't support my racing. If I wanted to go racing, figure it out for yourself, Charlie. But 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 that was pretty much a common attitude. Mm-hmm. back then and um and uh but dan and a fellow by the name of skip skip hudson who later drove for me uh, uh lived up in riverside went to school together went to dry lakes together that's where they got started and uh, 
And then later on, ended up driving for Frank Garciero, who was one of the early mentors of bringing in the Ferraris and so forth and so on in the late 50s and uh, early 60s. And, and then uh, Shelby and the Cobras came and they both drove those and Jerry Grant drove. And these are all guys that we knew and we, we may have been racing against each other, either as team owners, drivers, or whatnot, but we palled around together. We mm -hmm. had tacos and, you know, raced go-karts in my shop. I had a pretty good-sized shop, and we wrapped um, uh, mattresses and tied them onto the pillar posts that supported the roof and get a half a dozen go-karts in there, and we raced until the exhaust gas shut the engines down. And I'm <laughs> not lying to you either. So, uh, no, it was fantastic. But that earlier group of Gurney and that, they easily adapted to Europe mm -hmm. uh, because there wasn't that. It was either go race there if you were really serious. There wasn't that much sports car racing yet. You know, yeah. SCCA was getting started. But, right. But in the mid-50s, if you, if you really wanted to race seriously, you had to. You had to go to Europe. Had to go to or Europe. Or you should go to Europe. Okay. Other than that, you're going to end up going to Indy, or, you know, which is perfectly fine. Well, we had a fair amount of, <laughs> like you said, road courses here in America, you know, because Watkins Glen was around back in the day. Yeah. Sebring was around back in the day, yeah. you know, and stuff. And uh, out west, I think, uh, up there in Northern California, there was a few places. And, of course, up in the Midwest, there was. But when you, when you talk about racing in Europe... Formula One was probably the one race that most people aspired to. If you talk to all the drivers that have been on my show, Formula One is, and even though Indy is a big deal in the United States, Formula One, because it was a road course, open-wheel car, right. was the, 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 the race to win. And Mario Andretti, who's been on my show, he's another one that raced Formula One. And there wasn't really, like you said, a lot of Americans that made that transition from racing in the United States to Europe and then ultimately successfully in Formula One. So share some thoughts on that. Well, I think we were also looked at, and maybe not correctly, but it's a little bit spoiled. Okay. Um, spoiled not so much personally, but by the conditions in which the United States allowed you to be okay if you, you know if you were saying middle class on that but but uh i'll tell you where it's been different guys on motorcycles americans go and that's a whole different breed of people and and the guys on motorcycles go over and win the 250 cc world championship and americans mm -hmm. and have had great success on on bikes, uh, two, 250cc and 500cc bike. But that's a little different background for most of those guys and whatnot. But they adapt because they just ignore Europe. Okay. Okay. And they're there to race their bikes, and that's it. Whereas, well, speaking of bike racers now, John Surtees, he raced bikes, but he also drove. Did he drive for you at one point in time? Surtees? No, no. But I first met Surtees when I first went to Europe in 57. We okay. were up at Monza. They had brought an IndyCar over because they did a couple of years of IndyCars racing at Monza. And did still, they really? When they were still doing the big, the big taper track, you know, the one that was 60 foot high and that if you didn't have your speed up, you'd slide off of it. Okay. And uh, we were there. Uh, Ak and I went down to, um, to watch this IndyCar that had come over. And uh, just to test out the track before they had the race a couple, three months later. Mm -hmm. And Surtees was there with his mother. And I think he was driving or riding for Augusta MV. But I'm, okay. I'm okay. And he was there with his mom in a little, little carriage van with two motorcycles in it. Uh -huh. And I met him. 
No, I didn't. Frankly, I knew he was top-end guy in motorcycle racing, even way back in 57. So that's when I first met him. Uh-huh. He could ride. Okay. But it was kind of cute because his mother was a typical Midlands English uh-huh. lady, and John Surtees was no-nonsense. No-nonsense, okay. No extra baggage, nothing. Just all race, all, all business. there. And, okay. he, and he hasn't changed much today. Tough, tough guy. And uh, I met a lot of the motorcycle racers over the years, like Barry Sheen and, and whatnot, and uh-huh. uh, Mike Halewood and... And those whole group. Different breed. Different breed? But, Different than race car guys? Well, some of them made the transition. Okay. Those that... i got to be careful how I put it, because I'm not looking down my nose at anybody. I'm just a country guy that got a little lucky. Okay. okay? Um, <clears throat> those that made the transition were usually fellows that had a little broader scope in life. Maybe okay. Maybe about food or maybe once in a while they'd actually gone to a symphony orchestra or you know or a little more cultured yeah so a little to speak. more cultured okay and but and then you know i met hale halewood at that time uh i was invited by brm to go to uh to monte carlo in oh 57. wow and then you could just walk around i had credentials they didn't care where you <laughs> where you were on the track or anything else and i you know i met fangio and i wow and I, that whole group of people um, um did you get a chance to meet phil hill yeah oh well i knew phil from california the United anyway States, okay yeah. i didn't know him well but i i knew him and mm-hmm. uh and whatnot, but Jack Brabham was there. I'll tell you a cute story. Okay, I had this auto auto year book, and I got the drivers to autograph it and whatnot. Uh, and Hawthorne and Collins and Fangio and Von Trips and oh wow, and the whole group, very and historic. I names. handed it to Jack Brabham. He was driving a two point two liter Cooper, had a smaller engine in it, but it was the best combination he had he actually i think he finished third in the race he actually drove but he was new to grand prix Uh up from australia and i handed him the book and asked him to sign it and there was a page in there that had a picture of the car and he just of the type of car he was driving and so he signed jack brabham just very quickly and i took it back and then a, a couple of minutes later he took it away from me and he put australia and I and I, I and I showed it to him some years later when he was a guest at our house. I think he just wanted to make sure everybody knew where he came from because he wasn't that well known at the time. Uh-huh. And of course, he became world champion and so forth. And then years later, one of his sons ended up dro- driving for Dan Gurney and I. Okay, so, Jeff Brabham. And um, well, now, is that the same Brabham that built the Brabham cars too? Yeah. yeah. Okay, Jack. Jack built the problem. So basically, what people don't realize, like McLaren, like uh, um, uh, Bruce McLaren, he was Australian, or was he New Zealand? But he there was New a, Zealander. Okay, so yeah. a Kiwi, as they call him. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people from down under, so to speak, were very successful car builders and racers, weren't well, they? Australia fifty years ago was not backwoods, but they were. They didn't have the 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 stuff just. In the market or on the table, mm-hmm. they had to be they had to be pretty clever to okay. go racing. I know when Kevin Bartlett came up in 1972, 
uh, we had done some work with him in the late 60s. Jerry Isert and I were together in a partnership with Indy Cars and some other stuff. And um, came up, and he had a, a Mark 10 McLaren, uh, you know, a Formula 5000 car. And it, it was pretty rudimentary. So we literally rebuilt it in a week in the shop and, and just stabilized it a little more, put, put some newer parts on it and, and that kind of thing. And then went up. He was going to run it at Laguna Seca. And at that time, Can-Am was still going. And I had been living in Europe for a couple of years and uh, had come back and I wanted to go. I was going to go Can-Am racing. We, we were seriously thinking about building our own car. Went to the Formula 5000 race just to take Kevin up there. And um, all of a sudden I realized that Can-Am was fading mm-hmm. and Formula 5000 was bloody good. Now tell us a little bit about Formula 5000. It's basically open-wheel cars. Open-wheel cars. They were uh, McLarens and Lolas and and a couple of other lesser brands. How did, it, how did Formula 5000 come to fruition? Well, it came into fruition to some degree in the United States. It was called Formula A. Okay. Gurney built some chassis, and there were some other chassis built. And um, that was in the um, very early 60s, and it it was an SCCA series. It brought some energy, but Can-Am was still it. Dominant, okay. Yeah, it was dominant. But there was this... It was a combination, I think, of a lot of things. Americans beginning to go to Europe... And European drivers had been coming and running at Indy in the 60s and whatnot and winning. And so there was this kind of blending beginning to go on. And Formula 5000 was already catching on in Australia, New Zealand, England, Europe and whatnot. And it was growing very quickly. And I uh, went to that race, and I, I got, I, I remember saying to Kevin on the way back to the shop on Monday, I said, "Look, um, I mean, it, it sounds like I'm BSing a little bit, but this is the way we used to do things." I said, "You want to get on a plane and go to Europe and get us a Lola?" And uh, he left the following Wednesday. And he had connections with Lola, and we got somebody else's car, and it was back to the United States eight days later. And we were off to the next race. And uh, there's some pictures of it here. But Kevin drove for me in 72. And then uh, it was a Lola 300. And then I ran Lola 330s and and that for a couple, three years. But then what I was trying to do was build my credentials towards Formula One. You just don't go say, hey, I want to be in Formula One. You Today or then... It, you just didn't enter. You had to be accepted in. Let's let's back up for a second. Now, did you you did do some Can Am stuff, right? Or you? Yeah, I ran Can Am cars in '67, I believe it was in '68. Which cars? Uh, Lolas. Oh, you ran Lolas? Yeah. So T70s uh, then. Yeah. Uh, um, Mark threes. Uh, Mark twos. Mark threes. Yeah. Mark okay. threes. Mark twos. I ended up owning a car that had been built for Jackie Stewart. Oh, really? And uh, it was kind of interesting because uh, there was a woman up in Hollywood, quite wealthy, um, who had been divorced and whatnot. And she, her attorney had gotten her to put money behind this car for Jackie Stewart, a T70, and it was beautifully built. The guys literally 
took it and took it apart and built it. it was, um, oh, I can't remember the fellow's name. And like I said, it comes with old age. <laughs> At any rate, but she found out that somewhere in this deal, um, they were double charging her and money was slipping out the door. Oh. So she did, she did, she just said, you're not going to run it and locked it up in the garage. Okay. And it had two spare engines, perfect car, and um, there it sat. And she wasn't going to let go of it. But somehow we heard about it. Okay. Rick, Rick Muther, and Rick has sadly passed on some time back, but he was a pretty damn good driver. At any rate, um, uh, we heard about it and found her address and went up and knocked on her door. And she just, she was pleasant. She said, no, I'm not going to run it. And she told us why. And I didn't have a heck of a lot of money then. Um, so, uh, in fact, Rick was putting up part. I was putting up part. My cousin was putting up some, but we were going to go racing and keep racing. And uh, to make a long story short, we ended up with the car. She she said, okay, you know. what? And she went to three races with us. No kidding. Yeah. And brought her lady or girlfriend. Okay. And uh, she had a great time. And she literally gave us a car. Wow. That's an incredible story. Yeah. yeah. She literally gave us a car. So, um, but, uh, you know, those things, they happen. Was that a Chevrolet-powered car? Or was it? A, yeah, it was Chevy-powered. Okay. Most of them were, other Most than Gurney's uh, machinery, and, okay. and a couple of others. But, uh, but, but that was in the early. That was just after USRC, and then, and then the uh, uh, Can-Am really gains its power okay. in the in the early, you know, in the late sixties and early seventies. The thing so, I always liked about Can-Am is it was basically unlimited racing. It was all-out innovation, all-out horsepower, yeah. and you just kind of kind of run what you brung and yeah. made rules uh, as you went along, right? Yeah, 700 horsepower, 750 horsepower, those big torquey Chevys, and, and the cars were well-built. As a matter of fact, one of my ex-mechanics and, and partner, uh, Granny Collins, did a heck of a lot of rebuilding of those cars for people that ended up with them here in the later years. Granny passed away 10 years ago, but uh, and he, he built replicas of them, and very well built, too, by the way. So uh, we, we have a few minutes left, so um, let's just skip around just for a second. So the, for Can-Am, and then the Formula 5000 came in in the early 70s, but then they tried to revive Can-Am in the late 70s. Were you involved in any of that? No. No, as a matter of fact, a couple of our Ensign Formula One cars were involved. They brought them over and put, you know, put a modified body on some of the Formula One cars and put engines in them. Uh, well, then Jack, somebody said that the Formula Five Thousand cars wound up with bodies on them. And some so they, of them, but some of the F One cars too. Really, I know, I know uh, one of our ensigns that happened with one of our uh, later ensigns. This was in the early eighties. This this. Transition. Rejuvenation started. Okay. Uh, I was never involved with it at all. Um, I think one of our ex-drivers, Jackie X, was involved with it one time. Did some did some racing in the latter day uh, Can Am stuff. But uh, speaking of drivers, let me just read down some of the list of some of the guys that I'm sure people recognize these names. Peter Refson raced for you. Jerry Grant, Clay Regazzoni, Al Unser, Dick Parson, Chris Amon, very well known. Jackie X, Patrick Tambay, he raced for you. Danny on Gaius, Danny on the gas. Wow. Yeah. 
Nelson Piquet, Brett Lunger, okay? Um, let's see. Jeff Lees, I'm not from it. Jeff Brabham. Uh, uh, Roberto Guerrero raised for you. I mean, some pretty. Davy Jones. I was in his wedding. You were? Wow. He you married had... a neighbor girl, a young neighbor lady that lived on the hill where we lived. Uh huh. And it was interesting. They had pink um, tuxedos. And all of his friends were from Columbia, and they had this beautiful brown skin, and I had this washed out <laughs> English background. Okay. You couldn't even find me in the pink car tuxedo, but uh, but I loved it. Okay. Wow. Roberto is a neat guy. Well, Chuck, I want to thank you very much for taking a few minutes and hanging out. Would you definitely be willing to come on the show again? Because sure. you've got, I mean, we didn't get to all this. Really, your your interview really needs to be televised because you have all these amazing pictures, all this history, all this stuff that's just incredible. I mean, radio doesn't do you justice. I mean, really, because you are an extremely accomplished individual. You were there with the biggest names. You were there from the beginning to, you know, the, the what I would call the golden era of racing. Uh, you've got some amazing concepts, some amazing stories. I definitely want to have you on again. And the beauty of it is you're right here in town. You can come yeah, and sit I'm in the getting, studio at any I'm time. down the street. Yeah, that's really cool. So we're just about out of time. I want to thank my special guest this afternoon, Chuck Jones. He doesn't have a website, but Google Chuck Jones Racing. Start with Chuck Jones, a sidewinder, because that was his big claim to fame back in the day. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Opinion Cars. Be sure to check out our show for the most legendary and fascinating names every Tuesday night. Tell your friends. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreetMotorsports.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. GolfStreamMotorsports.com and Nostalgia Video Cards. Don't forget our podcast. You know, you can hear all the past shows at Nostalgia Video Cards. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and we'll see you at some of the races. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDTF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen. You dumb cracker.